So it's great to have uh, Rachel as part of the teaching team, and uh, husband's not bad either. Uh, she obviously influences him quite a lot because uh, he's, he's not bad. And uh, it's great to have Andrew part of our teaching team here as well. He primarily spends a lot of his time up in London, uh, working with King's Church in London, but uh, very much still involved with us here, so it's great. And do you know what, Andrew... What really struck me this week is not just coming, it's not an academic exercise for him. It's, it's quite bright, but it's not just an academic thing of opening up the Bible and going, oh, look at this point, look at this point, look at this point. It's not. He came out the other day from his room and he was so moved just by opening up the Word of God, reading the Word of God and just the profound impact it was having upon himself. And so it's with that really that he's wanted to come and communicate the heart of God. And, uh, you know, we're very blessed to have him here today. So please, we welcome Andrew Wilson. He says the nicest things, doesn't he? Thank you very much, Graham. It means a lot. Um, yeah, we are. It has been a strange, fascinating, I hope, fascinating series. It's just full of stories about broken people finding hope if you've not been around then that's one of the that's what I was being moved by this week is just this book Genesis which many people know for sort of origins and all that sort of thing and we've spoken on that in the past but in this series we've just been looking at how God brings hope through broken people shows his stories of God's kindness to all the surprising people and so if you are new to this or if you have been around for the last two months and just haven't listened to a word anybody's been saying, we basically have just been looking through this one family and following Abraham's family generation after generation and seeing how God blesses the world through them even though they are messed up, broken people like us. So if you're, we're going to be in Genesis 38 today if you have a Bible and uh, I think we've almost saved the weirdest story for last. Okay, so lots of strange stories have gone on in this series, lots of people doing odd things. In this story, Judah, who is the main focus or half the focus of our text, ends up sleeping with his daughter-in-law, whose name is Tamar, but only because he thinks she's a prostitute. So that's all right then. I mean, this is a weird family, and this is yet another chapter in the catalogue of family disasters. So if you are from a messed up family or a complicated family, this family should speak to you. I, I heard this wonderful comment um, a while back from a, a senior rabbi who was speaking about the Jewish people and he said, the Jewish people are just like everybody else, only more so. And when you read this story and you, the Jewish people get the name from Judah, the one who we're going to read about today, this family, that's true. The Jewish people, are, they're like just the same as everybody else, as this rabbi said. Just more so. You can see yourself in these people. And uh, there are two things you need to know about this family as we turn there. One, they carry the hope of the world. Literally, God has promised to bless all the world through this family, through Abraham and his grandchildren and their offspring. That's the first thing you need to know. The second thing you need to know about them is that they are a mess. They are a basket case. They are a faithless, greedy, vindictive, polygamous, petty, lazy, sometimes incestuous, violent, vengeful, misogynist, boastful, backstabbing, adulterous mess. Right? And so are we. So are we. And that's why we can see, that's why this story is powerful. 
in any other religion, if you're trying to start a religion, you would not found it. If you were inventing it, it's such a powerful challenge to people who say, oh, it's just been, it's a power play. It's been written by people trying to get you to do what they want. You would never invent stories like these as your heroes. This is the opposite of the kinds of characters. These people who sleep with their daughters and get drunk and then forget what they did and then massacre a village because they raped their sister. And I mean, this is a mess of a family. It's the way people are and it's the kinds of people the real God wants to rescue the world through. But if you're making up a fake God, you wouldn't make up these people. You wouldn't trace it back to these guys. But what I do want, it's also a fairly confusing family. So I just want to summarize the family tree to try and draw together the whole series so we can see who everybody is, and hopefully most of the names we've talked about in this series will appear up here, and you'll see how they fit together. Otherwise, it is just confusing. Most of us don't have 12 kids, and when we do, we don't generally have them with two wives and two slave girls, so it's very difficult to find the thread. This is the family tree that we've been looking at in this series. It begins with Abraham. He's underlined because he is the one who carries the promise. Abraham is married to Sarah, and he also, she has a, Sarah has a slave girl called Hagar. Abraham has sex with Hagar and has a son called Ishmael. And then also, past childbearing age, has sex with his wife Sarah, who has this miraculous child, Isaac, the child of promise. Isaac's name means joker, or he laughs. And because it was just, huh, seriously? And so he is the child of promise in that generation. He marries Rebecca, who is a smart woman and a beautiful woman, but a smart one. And that comes in significant later. Um, the two of them have t- twin boys, Esau and Jacob. And Rebecca's cleverness manages to get Jacob the blessing, even though Jacob really wanted to give it to Esau. And so Jacob is the sort of the twister. He's then the key figure in the next generation. And he is married to two women, Leah, who is the one he married, who he loved less, and Rachel, who is the one he really wanted. And they also both have slave girls as well, but I haven't put them on here just because there wasn't space. But I know that they should both be on there too as well, really. But legally, their kids would be the, children, the offspring of the woman who owned them. I mean, it's a... We are not sanctioning this, right? This is not the Bible writer saying, hey, you should all have slave girls. It's not that at all. In fact, the slave girls lead to all kinds of problems in the story, as you see, and so does polygamy. Um, but he's got Leah and Rachel. Leah, with Jacob, then have, has four boys, who Rachel was, the real Rachel, uh, that was, as in that was here speaking, that spoke about uh, a couple of weeks back. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. Judah, you see, is underlined. He's the guy in that generation who carries the promise. And he's the one we're talking about today. Then Rachel's slave girl has two sons, Dan and Naphtali. Then Leah's slave girl gets in on the act and she has two sons named Gad and Asher. Then Leah herself is past childbearing age again, is able to have children again called Issachar and Zebulun. And then Jacob and Rachel finally have two boys before Rachel dies in childbirth, Joseph and Benjamin. So, 12 kids who are now the foundation of the 12 tribes of Israel and there are still a lot of people around us, probably many of us know people whose surnames are Levi or Benjamin who will trace their lineage back to these 12 people. This this nation has changed the world more than any other family ever has. Um, We'll see it in all sorts of ways even as we go. Um, And so then Judah, oh no, then Joseph has two boys called Manasseh and Ephraim and Ephraim is blessed even though Manasseh is older. And then Judah goes down to the land of the Adullamites, marries a woman called Shua, and we're going to read this story in a minute. Judah and Shua then have three boys called Ur, Onan, and Shelah. Ur marries a young woman called Tamar, who's not from the family. But Ur then dies, and Tamar then has to marry Onan, who also dies. 
And then she waits around for Shelah, but she doesn't get him. Instead, she ends up having sex with her father-in-law because she's disguised as a prostitute and as a result has two boys, twins, called Perez and Zera. And Perez is the great, 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 great grandfather of King David. Right? It's a messed up family, but that's the story. That's what we've been doing for the last 10 or so weeks. And we're now going to read, as I say, arguably the weirdest account in the book, Genesis chapter 38. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adullamite whose name was Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. Now, just that be a notice, if you're a woman or in a culture like this, and you aren't sure what you're going to call your kid, don't say anything. Because otherwise they'll say, what do you want to call the kid? And you go, uh, and yeah, okay, great, that's his name. So this poor guy is now living with that. And every time you meet him, you say, hi, what's your name? Uh, does he just not know his name? Very strange. Anyway, that's, I'm sure, not what happened. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Chazib when she bore him. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn. So Judah's got three sons. Ur, the firstborn, takes a wife for her, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, who's the middle brother, go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. Now, we don't do that in our culture, but in many cultures, historically, that's what happened. Because if a woman had a husband who had left her without children and then died, she was very vulnerable because there were no men with land to protect her. So it was a common custom. Happens a lot in the Bible where the brother marries his dead brother's widow, if you see. That's what's happening here. But Onan knew that the offspring wouldn't be his So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. So now Tamar's married two men, and they've both been killed by God for their wickedness. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, the little boy, grows up, for he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. Now, just for a moment, look at this story from the point of view of Tamar, from the woman, the one without power. Most of Genesis is told about men. Most of the names on that family tree are men. That's the way patriarchal society worked. But there are a number of stories in Genesis where suddenly the story zooms in on the experience of a woman. And you get that actually a bit with Eve. You get it with Rachel and Leah, certainly quite strongly with Leah. You get it with Dinah. You get it with Tamar. You get it with a number of these women who then become a focus of the story. And I want you to imagine what it's like to be a woman in an honor-shame culture where everything is about honor and where both of the men in your life have died and left you without any children. She is vulnerable. She's isolated. She's shamed. She's got no power, right? The men hold all the power in the society. She's excluded from God's people. She's a desperate woman. How would you feel and how would you act Just that for context for what she's about to do. Just hopefully frames it a bit. So instead of thinking, oh, I can't believe she'd do that. Just this would hopefully set the scene for what she's going to do. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. 
When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira the Adullamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up and sat at the entrance to Enaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up and she hadn't been given to him in marriage. Oldest brother's dead, middle brother's dead. Youngest brother, who she's been told, wait around and he'll be given to you. That hasn't happened. Judah's broken his word. We don't know why. Maybe the younger brother's changed his mind. Maybe the younger brother said, I want to marry her. She's really old. Could be anything. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, come, let me come in to you, for he didn't know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, what will you give me that you may come into me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. Now, I'm not saying this from personal experience, but I think that's very expensive, right? A goat is very valuable in that culture. That's a high price. And so she's not sure. He's like, a goat? Really? Okay. And she said, well, if you give me a pledge until you send it, which is kind of the ancient Near Eastern equivalent of, I prefer cash, I think. You know, I, hang on, I, I'm happy to wait around for a goat, but I'd really like something now, if that's okay. Maybe this check will bounce. So she said, if you give me a pledge, and so that's what, that's what he does. He said, what pledge shall I give you? She replied, your signet and your cord and your staff that's in your hand. So Judah gave her them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away, and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. Now again, we'll pause the story for a second. Tamar, like a lot of women in particularly the Old Testament scriptures, uses her intelligence to get the better of men who hold all the social power. Right? In this world, men have all the power, but what they don't have is all the intelligence always. And so you find this theme often in the Old Testament is that smart women outmaneuver stupid men who are more powerful, but then the women get the last laugh. It happens all the time. If you read the Bible looking for it. It never happens today, of course, but it did happen in their day, right? I just see lots of grinning women looking at their husbands. In fact, one in particular who I won't name just sort of did this, and I just thought, yeah, that's excellent. Um, but you get funny all the time. Rebecca outmaneuvers Isaac to get Jacob the son that she wants. Rachel outmaneuvers Laban over the household gods. The Hebrew midwives outmaneuver Pharaoh and save Israel. Rahab outmaneuvers men. Jael does it. Abigail, David's wife, does it. Esther does it with her husband's. It happens all the time. There's loads of this, this theme in the Bible. She uses the only thing she's got, her brains, and of course her sexuality as well, but it's really it's a, a plan that she outmaneuvers Judah she uses the one thing she does have to get into the people of God. I'm not condoning it, but I am saying, see why somebody would do that in their culture. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend the Adullamite to take back the pledge, so he's left these three things that prove it's him, and then he sent the goat to get them back. You know, not the, you know what I mean? He <laughs> sent the goat in exchange to get them back, rather than the goat's going, I've come here to try and find a goat. <laughs> not that. Um, when he sent the goat, he didn't find her. And he asked the men of the place, where's the cult prostitute who was at Naim at the roadside? And they said, no cult prostitute's been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I've not found her. Also, the men of the place said, no cult prostitute's been here. And Judah replied, let her keep those things as her own, or we shall be laughed at. Notice the honor-shame dynamic here. It's like, I, I don't want to be humiliated. So, all right, we'll just let her keep them, because I don't want this to be known that what I've done. You see, I sent this young goat, and you didn't find her. At this point, we know who's done it, 
But Judah doesn't realise that it's him who's responsible for the pregnancy. So there's a bit of dramatic irony here, and we're going, <laughs> and Tamar a little bit is going, <laughs> and Judah is going, because that, he's about to get angry about it. About three months later, why three months later? Because it's clear that she's pregnant now. Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law has been immoral. Moreover, she's pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. What a hypocrite this man is. But that's what he's going to do because of the shame. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I since I didn't give her to my son Shelah. And he did not know her again. Right? She's completely won, nailed him here, hasn't she? She said, hey, all right, well, I don't know who's the, any, do you, these look familiar to anybody, any man around here ever seen this signal or that cord or that staff? She's doing it because that's what she has to do. And Judah, of course, then not only not going to burn her, he's then going to recognize that she was in the right. He's, I think there's a note of repentance here and a recognition this should not have happened. I've been wrong. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand saying, this one came out first. Again, to be the firstborn son was a huge deal in their culture. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out. And she said, what a breach you've made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Perez, which means breach. Afterwards, his brother came out with a scarlet thread on his hand and his name was called Zerah. What are we going to make of this very bizarre story? It's a strange story. These people are messed up. Should we make of it, well, copy Judah. You know, you can have sex with a prostitute, but only if they're not related to you. No. Or should we say, well, you should copy Tamar and maybe just sleep your way into the people of God. No. Passages like this are challenging, aren't they? Because what we want in a biblical story is like a clear hero to copy or a clear Jesus figure who will save us. And this story has neither. And actually, if you read through the whole Old Testament, you'll find quite a lot of passages don't have either of those things. And we want stories like that, but it's very difficult for us when there isn't anyone like that. So here's something that I've found helpful that you may find helpful as, as well when reading the Bible. Try and learn how to read the Bible backwards. Right, try and read the Bible backwards. Try and start with what you know about this person. If, we all, if something later becomes clear about these people, try and start with what you know and then go back into the story thinking, well, this person becomes them. And if that's true, then there must be something else going on here. Why, what am I supposed to learn about this person knowing what I know about who they become? It's what we do with movies a lot. Right? So if you watch Titanic, many of us have probably seen Titanic, the, the movie gets a lot of its dramatic power, such as it is, from the fact that you, you and I know the boat's going to sink. If you didn't know the boat's going to sink, the movie will not be as good, which is strange. But it's not supposed to be a twist, of course. It's meant to be, because then there's all sorts of scenes, you know, oh, it's Leonardo DiCaprio and Kate Winslet. They're going to get together. It's all going to be lovely. No, actually, you're going to freeze. You're going to freeze. Ah! And then you've got those cafe scenes with, I think we should turn on the last boiler. Turn on the last boiler, Mr. Random so-and-so. Yes. And you think, no, slow down, you crazy fools. You're going to hit the iceberg. But you actually read, in some ways, you watch the film backwards because you know where it's going to end up. And that brings drama to what you're watching. I was watching um, the BBC's Wolf Hall last year about Henry VIII and Anne Boleyn. 
And the Anne Boleyn character is played by Claire Foy, who also plays the Queen in The Crown. And so she sort of, this sort of minces in, pouting all the time. This sort of very flirtatious kind of woman. And every time she comes in, then I'm just watching her go, you're going to get your head chopped off, ha! Because you know what's going to happen to Anne Boleyn. So you watch the story differently, and it happens all the time. The Star Wars movies, the first three, I'm not even sure they should be called movies. Everything about Star Wars makes that. I hate Star Wars from beginning to end. Star Wars cats up there. Yeah, look at this. Heads being covered. Not a fan. But again, the drama, such as it is, and there's very little of it in the first three movies, comes from the idea that you know that this person's going to become a baddie and this one's going to become a goodie and he's really his father and all that because you know it's coming. Stories were like that all the time. Genesis is like that. Genesis, when this was written, everybody knew who Judah was. We knew who Judah was going to become because when this book was written, Judah was already a very powerful tribe in Israel. So you know this guy's significant. And actually that dramatic irony, wow, you became him, has only got bigger over the years. So because we now know that a thousand years after this story, Perez, born out of the relationship of his, his mum and her father-in-law, Perez is going to be the great, 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 great grandfather of King David's. We know that. And we know that and he's, going to be the first, he's going to be the first real king that replaced Saul and become the first true king, the head of the line of David. We know that 300 years after that, Judah is going to be the only tribe left. That Israel will have been exiled and taken out of the land and there will only be one true tribe. There won't, Judah. And we know that in the Roman times, the land won't be called Israel anymore. It'll be called Judea, Judah's place. We know that Jesus will come from this tribe. We know Jesus will come from the tribe of Judah and that Tamar will be included in his genealogy that we read at Christmas. And this woman is going to be immortalized in scripture as one who is an ancestor of King Jesus. And we know that billions of people are then going to worship him as God. And we know that Judaism is going to completely shape the world beyond all recognition, even if you're not religious. You, you might not be religious here this morning, you might be here for another reason, but I think, imagine, even if you are, just imagine how the last 200 years would have looked without any Judaists, without any Jews, without Karl Marx, without Albert Einstein, without Sigmund Freud, without Emil Durkheim, without... There would be all kinds, the world would be a totally different place. This, these people, Judah's people, are going to absolutely shape world history and we're supposed, we know that and now we go back to the story knowing as we do that history is going to end with people from all tribes and tongues and nations worshipping the lion of the tribe of Judah and then we go back to the text and we go seriously you why that's what we're supposed to do there's meant to be a reading the Bible and even reading history backwards that takes us back to Genesis 38 and part of the point is that we're supposed to say seriously this guy, this clown, this immoral, hypocritical, I'm, I'll sleep with her. Oh, no, I won't. I'll burn her. Oh, gosh. Oh, no, I've been found out. Seriously? That's where, that's where the hope comes from? We're supposed to read it that way because our heroes are broken. All of them are, apart from one. And we're supposed to read scripture that way and say, Abraham, yeah, he messed up. Moses, Peter, Paul, they all messed up. Martin Luther, he hated Jews. Calvin, he burnt that guy. George Whitfield, he heard what he ever read what he said about slaves. Martin Luther King, look at his personal life. And we're supposed to continually go to our heroes and think, they're broken, only one is not, and everyone other than him, King Jesus, is a mess in some way, and yet God uses them anyway. We're supposed to do that when we read stories like this. It tells us something about our heroes. 
about ourselves. But I think there's something else going on here as well. I think what it does, this story, if we read Genesis backwards as well, is it tells us or hints to us that something has changed between this story in chapter 38 and the end of the book. I'll tell you why that's true. See, Genesis 49, as Jacob is about to die, he gathers all of his sons together, all 12 of them, all in a line, and he moves along the line, blessing his boys and pronouncing blessings over them. And what we find him doing is he's ruling out, in the first few, he rules out some of the guys who are not going to be the tribe of kings, they're not going to be the first among their brothers because of things they've done wrong. So he says, Reuben, it's not going to be you. You slept with my concubine. You're going to be blessed anyway, but that's why you're not going to be the tribe of kings. Simeon and Levi, it's not going to be you. You are men of violence. You massacred a whole village because they raped your sister. I mean, I did say it was a messed up family. And as he goes along, you think, I know who it's going to be. It's going to be Joseph. It's bound to be Joseph. Joseph had the dream. He saw all these people bowing down to him. Joseph will be the tribe of kings, surely. And it isn't. And then he says in verse, chapter, chapter 49 and verse 8, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Notice he's taking the Joseph's dream. I saw these guys bowing down to me. And he's saying that dream is now going to be possessed by Judah. Judah is a lion's cub. Our God is the lion, the lion of Judah. That's where it comes from. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you've gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion. And as a lioness, who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. The nations are going to come and bring tribute and worship to his great, 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 great grandson. What a claim. What a blessing to give to somebody. And yet it seems very unfair. Because he said, Reuben, you can't have it because you did this. And Simeon and Levi, no, you did that. And Judah, you get the blessing. And we're reading it going, but hang on a second. Judah had sex with his daughter-in-law because he thought she was a prostitute, then threatened to burn her. This guy is a charlatan. He should never receive that blessing. And it raises the question, did something happen between chapter 38, where Judah did this, and chapter 49, where he receives that blessing? And if so, what was it? Genesis 43. It's years later. Joseph is prime minister in Egypt and Jacob and the rest of the brothers and his sister are in Israel and there's famine. And the guys have to go down to Egypt to get food and Joseph, through a long story Graham shared last week, ends up becoming prime minister of Egypt and having the power to give grain to trade with anybody who wants it. So the brothers go down to Egypt, they get grain, and then they head back to the land. And, but on the condition, Joseph said, that if they ever come back, they need to bring the little brother with them, Benjamin. Now Jacob, the old man, doesn't want Benjamin to go because Jacob loves Benjamin. He's one of Rachel's two boys. And so Jacob's lost Joseph because he's gone to Egypt. And now he's got this young man who he doesn't want to lose. But it, over time, the famine becomes, comes back. And these men are so hungry and their families have nothing to eat. They have to go trade in Egypt. And so the brothers say to Jacob, we've got to go to Egypt to get food, otherwise we'll die. But if we go, the prime minister, who we know is their brother, but they don't know that, the prime minister will not give us grain if we go without the little boy. 
So you've got to let us take Benjamin with us. Jacob says, if you take Benjamin and something happens to him, I will die of grief. And they say, Father, we've got to take him. And Jacob's saying, no, you mustn't. And then Judah steps up and says this, 43.9, I will be a pledge of his safety. From my hand, you shall require him. If I don't bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. So Judah becomes Benjamin's pledge. Let's take the boy and I guarantee his safety. And if he doesn't come back, it will be on my head. He is preparing to act as his substitute. If there's trouble, I will take his place. Now, I can't be sure, but I think that's why Judah, for all of his sins with Tamar, became the ancestor of kings. Because God was writing into the story of God's people that what it means to be a king in his view, is going to be bound up with being a substitute who lays their life down to protect other people. That's still what leadership is now. That's what we celebrate in weddings. That's 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 what husbands pledge to do for their wives. That's what church leaders pledge to do for their churches. What kings pledge to do, or queens, for their nations. That's what we do. And that's what Judah is being told. And that's what Judah is deciding to do before his father. I will lay my life down to protect this one. I will ensure he comes back. And sure enough, this is exactly what happens. Joseph insists, they get down to Egypt, and Joseph says, through a a trick, basically, to try and test the brothers, I need to keep the little boy. But I will have him as a ransom, because he's responsible for what's happened here. And Judah realizes that if he goes home to his old father without the little boy, his dad will die of grief. And so Judah, the substitute, steps up. And in chapter 44, 31, he says this, As soon as my father, he's pleading with his brother Joseph, who he doesn't know is his brother. As soon as my father sees that the boy is not with us, he will die and your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol, the grave. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, if I don't bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now, therefore, please let me remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? That is how the cycle of sin and injustice gets broken, by a substitute. That's what happens. The cycle of sin in the world gets broken by exactly that same thing happening. By somebody saying, I will substitute myself so that they can go free. That's what Judah does. And that's what his great, 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 great grandson Jesus does. He says, I get it. I get the way justice works. I know that somebody has to pay. But I don't want you to, please don't harm the boy. Seriously, I will, it's like somebody standing in front of the bullets and saying, don't harm them, I will stop it. I will take it and if you liberate them, I'll, be, I'll pay anything you want. I'll die for him if needed. But you've got to let them go because I cannot go back to my father without him. And that's what Jesus does. That's what this week is about. It's Palm Sunday. It's the start of Holy Week and everything that be, happens in this week You've, you might, be, might or might not be a person who talks about Good Friday or Maundy Thursday or Easter Sunday. But if you are, and even if you're not, everything that happens in this week is a step-by-step process of Jesus standing in front of the tanks and saying, I will take it. You've got to let them go. I'm not going back to my father without them. What are you talking about? I will take the blame. Take me instead. He goes, rides into town on a donkey. 
and then turns over the temple tables and then tells this story and challenges those rulers and then goes and has this mysterious supper and then goes out and gets himself arrested and flogged and killed because he's saying, I want you to take me. Don't harm the boy. Don't harm her. Take me instead. I'm not going back to my father without them. And that's the heart of the Christian message. A substitute is where the hope comes from. Judah substituted for Benjamin. A thousand years after him, David from the tribe of Judah substituted for Saul from the tribe of Benjamin. A thousand years after that, Jesus from the tribe of Judah substituted for Peter. He said, I'll take his shame instead of him. Substituted for Paul. Substituted for Barabbas. Said, I'll go. I'll die. Barabbas go free. Substituted for the guy dying next to him saying, I'll take the rap. You will be to me with, to get today. You will be with me in paradise. Substituted for you. And that's what Jesus did. He became the substitute like his distant ancestor saying, don't harm the boy. Don't harm the girl. I'm not going back to my father without them. Jesus, Judah's lion, substituted for us and said, Father, forgive them. They just don't know what they're doing. That's what this week is all about. That's what the Christian message is all about. And as we close, there are some of us here, we're going to get the band out now, but there are some of us here who still living under the cloud as if the blame has not been taken. Some of us who don't even know that this is what Jesus came to do. You may have heard another version of Christianity where Jesus came to teach you you should be a better person. Christianity is not about that. Christianity is about Jesus saying, let me take the blame. I want you to be set free. Let the boy go. Let her go. Let him go. I will take it. And some of us are living under the cloud of the shame and the blame of all the things we've done. And Jesus wants to say to you today, for this week and this year, let me take that. Let me, don't, don't harm the boy. Let me take it. That's what he does. That's what the gospel is. A substitute dying for you so you don't have to. We're going to give an opportunity to respond in a moment, I think. But before we do that, I'm going to pray. We're going to sing and celebrate what God has done. Father, we thank you so much for this crazy family and the ways in which their lives have provided hope for billions of people, including us. Lord, thank you for the examples we see in them of what not to do. And thank you for the ways in which your grace shines through them with your surprising acts of kindness continue to overpower their stupidity and ours as you act to save people through your grace. We thank you for the substitute, Jesus, and how he takes the blame for us. And we honor you for all that you have done and worship you. Amen. Amen. Let's stand, shall we?